2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobus, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Christopher Levins about his book, King Chongjo, An Enlightened Despot in Early Modern Korea. Chris, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, glad to be here. Glad to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
1: Uh, well, I uh, finished my PhD in uh, 2014, and um, I was getting ready to uh, develop my first uh, book proposal, and I got a a one-year visiting professorship at uh, Oberlin College, and so one of the things you have to do when you're interviewing for the job is meet all the different faculty, and I was going around meeting people and talking about various aspects of my work, and I ran into one of the professors there who um, asked me about my dissertation in which I had said that King Jo was not uh, an absolute ruler. And she said, well, what do you mean when you say absolute or absolutism? What are you talking about? And I kind of filibustered some kind of non-answer uh, to, <laughs> to, to escape the question uh, because I realized I didn't know, really. I just had this, like, well, absolutism. I mean, we know, like, it's Louis Fourteenth and, like, let them eat cake and, you know, this kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, we know what absolutism is. But then I, I kept the fact that I didn't know the answer to that question while I was trying to turn my dissertation into a useful book because it's, it's an acceptable dissertation, which means it's boring. So I have to try <laughs> to turn it into something that might be a little more interesting to people. And I was like, well, what is absolutism really? I mean, what, does you, what do you really mean when you say that? And so I started to look into the theoretical work that had been done on it And there were two things I took away. One thing was nobody really knows what absolutism is, or there's no consensus (laughs) on it. And also, by whatever criteria most people would accept as absolutist, well then, in my judgment, Chongjo kind of was. So I decided, okay, well... I guess that's the book then is, is actually to essentially argue against myself. I'm now going to take my dissertation <laughs> and say, by the way, I got it wrong, actually. Uh, and by these, these criteria, uh, Tongjo actually could be considered an absolute ruler. So that's what I spent the rest of my time in that job doing. And then I got a postdoc after that, which basically was the final, finally preparing the final manuscript. And, uh, and so, yeah, that's kind of how the, the book came together.
2: Hmm. It's a fascinating book because you're engaging with your subject on several different levels. You're talking about him within the context of the uh, ideas about uh, absolutism, uh, 18th century governance, but you're also talking about him, obviously, as a figure in Korean history, and you're engaging with the historiography of your subject, which I thought was pretty interesting as well. I I was wondering, though – uh to start us off in terms of discussing Chongjo and you know his uh you know status as an absolute ruler if you could tell us a little bit about him and what 18th century Korea was like you know to what degree was it similar to um the other areas of of of, of uh, Asia the uh, areas of the west that you uh sometimes uh, compare him to as a ruler
1: yeah so those those are two really interesting questions uh i'll go in order uh so the first one uh, about Chongjo himself um he actually had uh, quite uh in, an interesting childhood um in that his uh, father was executed by the king who would have been his grandfather uh, which is extremely unusual uh in in Cholson, Korea, so in, that's the, the sort of the, that was the name of the country. So w- whenever the ruling family of Korea changed, the name of the country was also changed. So when Chongjo's family, which is the Yi family, the royal Yi clan, um, or Lee, often, often Koreans will say Lee instead of Yi. So you know, like like Sigmund Ri, uh, the first president of South Korea is also a from the not the same family, but the same name. Um, so that family. Uh, when they were ruling, the country was called Cholsun. Uh, and so in Tolson, you know, unlike, say, you know, medieval England, where there was constant warfare between fathers and sons over the, over the control of the country, over who's going to be the next king, in Tolson it was usually very orderly, a very orderly succession. Um, you know, there might be challenges between half-brothers, but, you know, the, a son would never challenge his father for the throne. It's just un- kind of unheard of. So the fact that the, the king who would be Chongjo's grandfather, had Chongjo's father executed is very unusual. And not only was it unusual, but it was carried out in a very unusual way. So instead of just, you know, saying off with his head or something and, and condemning it as a traitor, because in, in the Chosun royal family, the king ruled in part because he was moral, or his clan was uh, supposed to be a moral example for the entire nation. So if the uh, if Chongzho's father had been executed as a criminal or, or as a traitor, uh, wh- whether he was or not um, is immaterial. If he had been so executed in that way, it would have tarnished uh, Chongzhou. It would have made it impossible for him to take the throne because he would also have been the son of a traitor. Um, so the king had to kill his own son, which is already a tragedy in Chosun. And then he had to do it in a very roundabout kind of way to try to avoid the stigma of criminality. So instead of just having him executed in a traditional way, which would have been either asking him to take or demanding that he take poison um, or having him strangled, um, he instead locked him inside a chest of rice. I mean, there's no rice in it, but it's it's a chest that you would use to store rice. So he ordered him to go inside of this chest and it was then sealed and simply left outside. Uh, and so Chongjo's father, who was the prince of the country, he was the crown prince, he would have been, was supposed to be the next king, a star, essentially starved to death right, and died of exposure, right, locked inside of a box sitting in the outside of the palace. Uh, and Chongjo was actually there uh, when this order was, slightly before this order was, car- was carried out. And so he, and he was about 10 years old so he had to be physically dragged out of the palace uh, because you know the the king was raging uh, he was raging at at Chengdu's father about what a failure he was and how he should kill himself because if he kill if he committed suicide then he wouldn't be a criminal so he said you should kill yourself you um, would spare all of us all of this pain um, and the whole time Chongdo was there 10 years old like wondering why his his grandfather screaming at his father to kill himself so he had to be physically dragged you know crying and screaming out of the palace. And so because he was only 10 years old when this happened, he didn't really understand of what had happened. You know, he didn't really understand why his father was executed. And his father was executed because he was probably because he was insane. Um, he had probably been driven mad through uh, constant abuse at the hands of, of the king, uh, Chongzhu's grandfather. And so he, he had started doing all kinds of terrible things. Uh, he would started you know, getting really drunk. He had started um, dressing in military uniform, which the king of Tolson usually didn't do. Uh, the, the king of Tolson was the head of the army, but he wasn't supposed to act like it. He was supposed to look like a scholar. Um, so he would – you know, he, he, the prince would put on this armor and like march around as if he's in a military formation, but he's all alone. Like there's no one there and he's like marching around. Uh, and then he started k- going into rages and killing people. And so that's why, and he probably threatened his father's life. Like he probably said, I'm going to, I'm going to kill, kill my father. Cause I hate him, which, who was the king of the country. So you can't do that. So he had to be executed for, for those reasons. But Chogdo probably didn't really know that he probably, cause he was only 10. So he didn't really understand what had happened. So he always thought that his father had been killed by factional infighting, by you know, different cliques in the government who had deceived him and who had deceived the king into this tragedy of, of having his son killed. And so I think that when Chongjo himself became king, his, his overall goal was, I'm not going to let that happen to me. I'm not going to be manipulated. I'm not going to be fooled by these cliques and these factions into doing something uh, terrible, uh, like, like what had happened to his father. And then that sort of ties in with the second question, which is, you know, what was 18th century Korea like? Um, it was a time of relative prosperity, uh, relative commercial development, um, relative security uh, and stability throughout the country. Um, so it's generally considered kind of the last golden age before, or at least a, at least a nice age, if, if not golden, uh, before the 19th century, which, which is considered to be a time of decline in Korean history, which then led to Korea becoming a Japanese colony uh, in the beginning of the 20th century. So many Koreans, when they look back at, at the history of their country, the 18th century and Chongjo's time is kind of the last time when we can still really be proud of our of our country and its accomplishments. Um, and it, it was a, a good time, but still Korea was behind uh, China and Japan. It was... It was improving commercially. It was uh, it was doing better than it had ever done before. But still, Korea was was still underpopulated. It was still kind of uh, economically backward. Uh, it wasn't strongly integrated into the larger um, trading networks that you had throughout East Asia. So it, even then, it was still a minor player. Uh, and that's kind of the situ- sort of a snapshot of what the 18th century looked like.
2: The what uh, the the context in which you've just placed Korea gets to this interesting question about absolutism because we talk about it oftentimes in in, in ways that cross national boundaries that kind of assume a a, a, a a generalized sense of political thinking. I was wondering if you could perhaps take us to talking about you know how you frame absolutism in the 18th century and then how it applies both to chongjo and to. How he sought to govern?
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of a something that I am hoping to do with with this project is is to get another side of absolutism out there. Uh, even even if, if people reject my central claim, which is certainly a debatable claim. I mean, I'm I'm not claiming to have a slam dunk uh, case, but even if people that don't you know accept my central thesis that Chongjo was an absolute monarch, I still think. It's valuable to ask the question and to show, you know, here's whatever we think absolutism is, which I was surprised at how little agreement there was when I looked into the sort of scholarly literature on, on absolutism. But I still think Korea can be a good test case of, okay, let's take these concepts and put them somewhere we haven't put them before and, and then see how they stack up. Because um, you've really, when you talk about absolutism, you've really got, it really goes back to two. There's we again we think like Louis the Fourteenth and, and 17th, 16th, 17th century France, and then there's China. Uh and so you know when I was a, a grad student and and when I was you know doing my PhD, and even when I did my dissertation, I, I was a good little grad student. So I just pretty much accepted what I was taught, which is that the Korean monarchy was weak. And what I think I've gathered from this is that When you talk about pre-modern Korea, Korea before it becomes a Japanese colony, any comparative statement you make, the unspoken and sometimes I think even unconscious comparison that you're making is with China. So if you say Korea's strong or weak militarily, if you say it's more or less devoted to Confucianism, if you think it's more or less commercially developed Uh, whatever this, whatever the comparative that you're making, you're possibly unconsciously uh, comparing it to China. And so when you look at the Korean monarchy compared to the Chinese monarchy, then yes, the the Korean monarchy was weak. um, Because the Chinese monarch had the kind of absolute power that we often think the French kings had. Um, And even then, probably not even quite that much. But they, they are actually closer to when you, again, when you think of the French king just acting on a whim and, and get, throwing caution to the wind and ign- ignoring what anybody else wants and just having people executed because they looked at him funny. That's much more characteristic of what you could get in China. And even then there's, you know, it's not quite that extreme, but you could get closer to that. You know, the, the Chinese emperor could have the highest, most respected officials in the land just beaten in front of him. Um, he could essentially have any of them executed without any real challenge other than please don't do that. Uh, but there's no real way that, that they could, any real thing that they could do to stop it. When I looked at Chongzhou and then I looked into the work on European quote unquote absolutism or, or despotism, it started to look much more similar there. I'm thinking, okay, this is much more like what I'm used to, um, Absolutism, which is essentially that there's theoretically no limit to the king's power. Theoretically, all of the power throughout the country ultimately goes back to the king. So anybody else exercising power is only doing so because the king has so delegated it to them. But in practice, you don't really have that level of complete freedom of action. I mean, there's expectations on you. There's an an understanding of the way things have traditionally been done that if you try to act outside of that, you're going to get your hand slapped because the king is never the only political actor. There's always other people that have their own followers. They have their own respect that they can command, their own resources they can command. And so what you end up getting is is a good absolute monarch is the opposite of that. A good absolute monarch is actually a consensus builder, essentially. They – They've gotten the other power players to be on board with it, to say, hey, supporting me as the king, not opposing me, not trying to thwart what I'm trying to do, that's good for you, too. And that's why you should do it. You know, you end up coming out ahead in in all of this. Uh, And I think that's what happened in in the so-called absolute polities in Europe. And I think that's what happened in Korea. And that's why I think. You know, In the end, it's a useful case. And in my estimation, you can't say that Chongzhou had the kind of power the Chinese emperor did, but I think you could say he roughly had about the same amount of power that, say, Louis XIV did. So if I guess in the end, what it comes down to is if the one is absolutism, then the other is too. So if, if you're going to apply that label, it has to be applied to both. And if you don't like the label for one, then you would also have to reject it for the other.
2: It's one of the things you do in your book that I thought was really interesting was how you – you show how the, how the idea of absolutism worked in practice, and you, uh, you know, sort of take the court, You take the, the, the factionalism which continued to exist uh, during his reign, and, and you show how that concept played out. And I'd like to start by, by talking a bit about that concept there, because you, what you do, the, uh, what you do is when you, uh, you start talking about. It, you go into the political thinking of the time. What were the political ideas about monarchy that Changzhou had to work with and what, which ones did he use in terms of realizing his vision of what he wanted his monarchy to be?
1: Okay. So for the first part, we'll we'll talk about it more generally, which I think applies for everybody. And then the second part, we can kind of get down to the, the Confucian uh, aspect of it, which is the, primarily what he used, a used because he was in a, a Confucian polity. Um, for the first part, uh, essentially it was, you know, today, hopefully, um, of course, you know, we, we look around, uh, United States and it's, it's not looking so much like this is the case, uh, in this particular historical moment, but generally speaking in, in the modern world, it becomes acceptable to disagree, essentially, to say we are two groups of people that both have the best interest of the country or the state or the people or however you want to phrase it, we both have the best interest at heart. What we disagree on is the effectiveness. Um, I think this policy is the best for everybody or for most people, Um, and you disagree, but you don't disagree uh, because you're a bad person or because you have a secret agenda. Uh, You disagree simply because you think that my method won't work and you have a better method that you think. And then we, in the public forum of ideas, we argue about this and we try to persuade people that that one or the other of our group has the better idea. In in the 18th century, anywhere in the world, uh, just about, uh, that's not how things went. Uh, When two groups disagreed, the group you know one group would say well basically we're right because we understand the world and what's going on and those people over there uh they're bad they they are not disagreeing because they have a true disagreement because you know reasonable men to use that term uh can can disagree no they're they're actually just out they're just in it for themselves they're trying to oppose what we want to do which is would be better for everybody because it's not good for them, and they they just want you know to to get a larger slice of the pie, uh, for themselves. And so, absolute theorists, the reason that they thought that absolutism was good, you know, I mean, obviously the king thinks, oh, absolutism's great because it means everybody has to listen to me. But why did these you know people around them think it was a good idea? Well, they thought because the king is the only one who can arbitrate these claims. I mean, if you allow people to vote, or if you allow that the, the the these different cliques and factions to work it out themselves what you're going to have is anarchy Uh, they're just going to fight each other over it because they're not really disagreeing over policy they're disagreeing over personal pettiness and bickering because because men are weak essentially um and if you hand it over to the mob you know if you if you if you try to have some kind of voting or something well that brings on the common people and they don't have any mentality they're easily misled uh, so that's just, that's just anarchy. The choice is between rule by a benevolent prince or mob rule. That's, that's kind of the way that they thought. So they would argue what you need is a king who can cut through all the BS, who can uh, say to all of these factions, you know, you can make your case to me, but I'm going to decide what's best for the country. And I'm the one who actually has the real interests of the country at heart. And I can override factions and I can uh, just ignore all of this petty bickering and get to the heart of the matter. And that was pretty much in a more sophisticated way. That's the essence of what they were arguing. So that's why they thought that that one man rule was better. You know, we we generally look at it now as being a bad thing because, you know, one person being in charge, they can just indulge their petty grievances and they can just ignore important problems that people bring up but in the 18th century they thought that uh, somebody like that is is what you want because you know they don't have to argue with anybody they don't have to go through committee to get anything done they make a decision they know what's up they say let's do it and you do it Um, and anybody who doesn't like that anybody who says well despotic rule is bad what they're doing is blocking the king's attempts to make society better and that's why you shouldn't do it when you shift over to Korea, you get a lot of the same arguments from those who supported a stronger kingship. He, he, they pretty much say it straight out. I mean, there's, there's a, a scholar called uh, Hassan. That's his, his pen name. That's the name everybody knows. That's the name he primarily wrote under uh, one of the greatest philosophers in the history of pre-modern Korea, very prolific scholar. He wrote on pretty much every subject that exists. And he essentially wrote, those who block the king's will— are essentially blocking the king's ability to bestow upon the people the blessings that only the king can provide, so the the implication there the you know the other side of that that he doesn't bother to say because everybody would understand it is you shouldn't block the king you should simply allow him to rule in the way that that he sees fit um and so chongdo himself with the way he, i mean he he promoted taasan he he liked Ta-san for a lot of reasons and he he protected him to an extent, uh, from his enemies, partly because he's writing this stuff, or, and he's expressing these opinions. Uh, let the king do what he wants. Well, that's what Chongz is looking for, uh, somebody who will do that. And Chongjo also exploited a something called uh, guan, uh, which is the Korean pronunciation of this Chinese character that originally meant weighing, as in like a scale, you know, weighing the, for, for a transaction, for a, you know, buying and selling. You know, you weigh the amount of bronze or copper or silver or whatever, uh, to get the appropriate amount of rice or something. And so, you know, metaphorically that ended up becoming judgment, you know, because it's, it's that's what judgment is, is, is weighing of options. Um, so your, your discretion, your ability to look at a situation and judge the amounts and decide what, what the right thing to do is. Um, and Chongjo essentially decided that, that, uh, he was the sage king, uh, who, who, was, who was, a king that embodies a Confucian. Virtues, uh, and that person is th- therefore should be trusted to use his discretion, to use his value judgment to say, okay, here's the situation, maybe here's what was done in the past, here's what the law says, but I'm the sage king and I can weigh the situation and violate what's happened in the past, the precedent that's been set, or I can deviate from the law uh, when I, as a sage king, have determined that that's the right thing to do, and he does that a, a number of times, and openly says that, that that's what he's doing. Um, and he and he says at one point, or he writes in his his uh, daily record at one point, he writes that uh, that those who stick too closely to the law uh, are not even worth discussing politics with, right? So he's saying right there, <laughs> if you're going to say that I've got to stick to the law, then I don't even want to hear from you uh, about politics. Because clearly, you don't know what you're talking about if you don't recognize that a sage-ching like me can make this value judgment and essentially violate the law when I think it's
2: appropriate. So the theory there is it really does grant him a lot of latitude. But as you explain, there's this gulf between the theory and the practice. The reality is that you know, Chang Jo can't simply snap his fingers and, and expect everyone to fall into line. He has to weigh all the various factions and interests that are existing in his court in order to – uh, carry out in order to you know, carry, implement his will, in order to uh, in, ensure that there is no dissent. And, and you explain in some detail exactly uh, who these factions were and, and, and the history that exists that predated uh, Shangzhou's birth, let alone his reign. So, uh, could you take us to that aspect of his uh, rule of the, the factions that existed at his court and the degree to which they affected? Or uh, challenged his vision for how he, as a king, should govern.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, In in fact, you know, to to speak directly to what you were saying, commenting on my presentation of Chongdo's case, you know, there there was a scholar, uh, a scholar official who was a high official at the time. So this is not you know some joker that nobody paid attention to. This guy was a high official serving in the government, and he said. uh, you know, you keep talking about using this discretion. He uses the very same word that Chongdo uses, this guan, this weighing. And he says, you keep talking about you're using this discretion. And yeah, we recognize that that can be done, but that's you know, even the sage kings didn't use it that often. And here you are, like every year, you're just like using it more than they used it in their whole lifetime. Um, so, so he certainly did not have a monopoly on uh, the, the you know political theory and and you know, what we would now call political theory, you know, for presenting why he should be a ruler because there are contradictory tendencies in Confucianism. You know, there's certainly this notion of, of the sage king and, and sage rulership and the fact that you need a king um, and, and no one should usurp the king's place. I mean, Confucius is very, uh, very well known in the, in the Analects for uh, openly condemning uh, dukes. What? what we translate in English as Duke, uh, uh, the title below king in, in the Chinese hierarchy, for them essentially usurping the place of the king, for, for ruling as the king is supposed to rule. Uh, and he says, you know, that's bad. Like, even if the king is bad, you're still not supposed to just take over and, and say, well, we're not going to listen to him anymore. Um, that's not the way it's supposed to go. But there's also contradictory tendencies where the king is supposed to rule as as we've been talking about in consultation with learned men, which means Confucian scholars, right? So you're, 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 you're supposed to listen to the, the king and do what he says and obey him, but he's also supposed to be ruling in consultation with you anyway. Uh, and there's, you know, you, you can look at that in different ways, right? I mean, consultation means what? Like, what if you consult with him and he ignores you? Well, then you could say, well, then you didn't consult very well and, and you could you know, criticize him in that way. And in the 18th century, you know, there, factionalism had existed in, in Cholson for about 200 years. Um, and when we say factionalism, it's, it's if not unique in world history, it's definitely unusual the way Korean factionalism worked because it was not the way more, you know, n- normally a faction arises around a particular issue or around a particular person, uh, sometimes if, if it involves personal conflict. And then once that issue is resolved or becomes irrelevant through historical change or the personalities involved, you know, the central personalities die, uh, then the factions disappear or reshuffle, and, and then new factions arise over a new issue. And again, the unspoken comparison is China. Uh, you look at important factions in China. Um, and factionalism was important in China, but it, it, you know, more generally followed this pattern. But in Cholson, it didn't go that way. In Cholson, they had a major split in 1575 between two major factions. And all of the later factions for the next 250 years all can originally trace their existence to one of those two factions because you inherited your factional standing. Um, You went to, you know, if if you were a Yangban, which is the the, the sort of uh, the aristocracy uh, of traditional Korea, especially in the Chosun period, if you were a a Yangban son from, from a powerful Yangban family, your family would be in one of the factions, one of these, which you know, however many there were, uh, which descended from the original two, and you would uh, associate only with members of your faction um even even as as uh, children or or going over to meet you know friends of your father and such uh, they would all be from the same faction and then when you went to for your education. You would have a tutor who was from your faction. And then when you were old enough to go to your private school, because the Yangban didn't go to the public schools because they weren't prestigious enough. So they had their own private schools and the private school would be dedicated to some great leader from your faction's past. And then there you would learn the texts of Confucianism as filtered through the way your faction interpreted those classics. And you would learn also what other factions said about the Confucian classics and why they were all wrong. And when it was time for you to get married, your family would arrange a marriage for you with a woman whose family was also from your faction. So that's why these factional uh, allegiances continue down through the generations. So even when there would be a dispute, it would cause a split between within an existing faction. They would split into two, but they would still be considered, you know, originally part of the same parent faction. Um, so these continue down for, for hundreds of years and it, it would get into you know, some, some stuff that you know, we look at it now. We think it's, it's uh, amazing to see like um, you know, maybe your grandfather who was who has already been – he's already dead. Maybe he was executed in a previous factional purge and then your faction comes into power and you say, not only do I want my grandfather's name to be cleared even though he's dead – but I also want you to punish the false – the people who falsely accuse him by uh, demoting them from office, even though they are also dead, right? But you're, you're still <laughs> demoting them from office um, because you, you, know, you continue to respect your ancestors after their death. So you – lowering their office, it, it lowers the whole clan's prestige. And even if it's bad enough, you even want them to be punished more harshly. And if they're already dead, well, how do you punish them more harshly? You desecrate the grave. So they they would do that. So, you know, in, in traditional Confucianism, you're supposed to keep your body whole, right? You're supposed to, to die such that your body has not been been horribly disfigured or damaged because it's a gift from your parents. So that's why poison or strangulation is the best, the quote unquote best way to die because it means your body's whole. If you're uh, decapitated which is the, the worst form of punishment, it's kind of a curse in the afterlife. You know, it's, 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 it's a, it's a sin in Confucianism to have your body be damaged that way. So what they would do is they would dig up the corpses of the men who had died centuries earlier and, and separate the skull from the rest of the corpse just to desecrate them. Right. Because they still remembered, you know, it's my great grandfather, you know, he died before I was even born, but we carried these stories down of these crimes against our family, against our faction, even down through the generations. So they, there's a lot of bitterness between these, these factions. And by the 18th century, you had, uh, what they called the four colors. That's the term they actually used at the time. They called them the four colors. Um, but for our purposes, the fourth color, we can just kind of ignore. So really there were three major factions and there's different ways to, to, um, translate the names, uh, but the way I use is is the patriarchs, the disciples, and the southerners uh, and the the patriarchs and the disciples originally had come from the same parent faction, so they really hated each other um, and the The patriarchs were the ones who were usually in charge, and they were really hard line on uh the more traditional understanding of kingship, which is the king just sort of canvasses his ministers who would hopefully be patriarchs themselves. And then they sort of tell him what their opinion is. And then he would basically, Oh, Oh, okay. Well, that's what you guys think. Well, let's do that. You know, that's, that's their sort of picture of kingship. Uh, and then you had the disciples and even though they hated the patriarchs, uh, they more or less had the same idea because they were from the same faction. And then you had the Southerners who had been out of power by Chongzhou's time for about a hundred years. So they, they had not been able to serve in the, in high government positions because they had lost an earlier factional struggle. So they had some different ideas. Um, and so, and Tassan, who I mentioned before, he was one of these people. So they were a little more open to a stronger king, because for them, what that would mean is a stronger king could get them back into power, uh, is is the real, what I think is their real understanding. And then philosophically, their position was, as I mentioned, that, that. uh, the patriarchs were kind of blocking the king from doing good things, and so they, the Southerners, you know, bring us in, put us in government, and we'll kind of let you do what you want. Um, so that's sort of the, the situation that, that Chongjo was in. And so he tried to do that to an extent. So he got Southerners into higher positions than they'd ever had before, including the leader of the Southerner faction. He put, them all, put him onto the state council, which was the highest government office that Chosun had. And for about a year, he actually had him as the only person. So it's, it's, it's a council that has three slots. So three, the three highest officials in the land, he actually left two of them empty for about a year and put this leader of the Southerners as the only one. So essentially he was essentially kind of serving like a prime minister, uh, which the (laughs) patriarchs were very unhappy about. It's been months sending angry letters to the King saying, (laughs) you can't have this guy be the only person in charge here. Um, so it was a difficult thing to do, but he, he did as, as much as he could. And he also used uh, special appointments, which means he uh, he recommends some – he appoints someone to office without a recommendation. Uh, normally, he would have to ask the minister of personnel to recommend three candidates, and then he would make a choice from the three he was provided. Uh, but he often didn't like the ones that he was provided because they were all patriarchs. So so he would use a special appointment to, to stick a southerner in there or some other supporter of his uh, that he liked. So those were the kind of, of tricks that he – used to, to try to build a base of support for people that would accept a stronger monarchy.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: I, I find it fascinating because you're he's definitely favoring one faction. And yet as you described, he comes to this with this, this, you know, this argument or this 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 belief that he is going to govern beyond factions. Did he ever you know have to you know rhetorically reconcile the two? Or was it just the idea that if you support him you're you're above factions if you oppose him you're demonstrating that you are a faction
1: i i think his he he's he's really in a in in to use a really outdated expression he's really in a pickle <laughs> because because he's both he personally and also the circumstances of the time make that whole concept really difficult so he he had a he Im- implemented a policy which is called uh, the Check, which best translation, I think, is the policy of impartiality. More literally, it means the p- policy of like uh, uh, kind of heavenly balance or something like that uh, makes it sound – or grand unity makes it sound nicer. But really what it means is, is being above factions. But he didn't invent that policy. It, it, the previous two kings had also – implemented that, though the first one uh, who did that, uh, it was really a misnomer, because what he meant by being above factions is he was constantly pitting the factions against each other, uh, and and a number of executions were carried out, uh, and his, his reign was a little bit bloody. But Chongdo's grandfather, the previous king, um, tried to do it in the way that we would actually picture it, which was trying to be above factions, but then what does that mean, you know? how can you really be above the factions when they're so ingrained in the political system? I mean, every official, pretty much, with very few exceptions, every official is a part of the factions. Uh, They're under enormous pressure to oppose the other factions for the reasons I described, because, you know, the disputes that they're having are not like you and I having a friendly dispute over policy. It's not, it's, it's not even like, you know, uh, uh, AOC versus Trump. It's not even that level of, of disagreement between two groups. It's for centuries your faction has been having our factional brothers executed. Um, never mind that for centuries I, we've also been having your factional brothers executed. But of course we're right and you're wrong. So so for <laughs> centuries we've been fighting you, and and you've been our enemies. So for somebody to come out and say, hey, let's all just get along. You're trying to turn back centuries of of conflict at that point. So what does that really mean? How do you really get beyond factions? Chongzho's grandfather couldn't accomplish it uh, in the way that we would say, which is, again, just trying to say, let's all just get along. Let's kind of ignore our factions and come together and work together for the good of the country. Chongzho knew he couldn't do that. But just as you say, well, does he build his own faction, like a pro-royal faction? Um, isn't that just more the same? Like, no, all I've done is add another faction to the mix. And he got accused of that. He, he was accused of, you know, the, the Tang Pyong faction, uh, which means people that support his policy of this impartiality, policy of impartiality. Oh, that's just another faction. You know, that's all you've done is now you've got a pro-king faction. It's not, not any different. And on top of that, I think Chongzho personally, to go back to what I was saying about his goal as king to avoid his perception of his father's fate, which is his grandfather, the king, was manipulated by a faction into thinking his son was his enemy and therefore he had him executed, which like I said is probably not what happened. He probably had him executed legitimately because he was insane and therefore could not be allowed to become the next king. Um, it, it would have you know, jeopardized the entire royal family, the entire rule of the dynasty to have a, essentially a madman sitting on the throne. That's the real reason, but Zhou probably didn't know that. He just thought – what he thought happened was that a rival faction convinced the king that his son, Chongjo's father, was his enemy and therefore had to execute him. So at the same time, he's promoting these southerners. He himself does actually want to be above factions. It's not just that he doesn't want a pro-king faction because of his, what his enemies would say, which is you're just building another faction to support you. How does that help? He didn't want any faction to think they really controlled him or, or he didn't want any faction to really think that he owed them anything because he's the king. You, know? you support me because it's the right thing to do, not because you think that you support me against my enemies and then later I reward you and later you, you've got some leverage on me where you could say to me, you remember the time we helped you against this other faction, you know, now you owe us. You know, he's, he's thinking, I'm the king, I sit on the throne, I don't owe anybody anything. So, it's, it's kind of the, the double edged sword that he was facing that I, I don't think he really found um, a suitable solution. I don't even know if there is a suitable solution. I mean, how do you, you know, how you, can you be above factions when it's so ingrained into the fabric of, of the political landscape? You know, how do you form a coterie of supporters that don't, therefore, expect to be rewarded for their support? Uh, but I think that's what he was trying to do.
2: It, the tools that he uses are are, are uh are are very interesting I, I was especially fascinated by by your description of the royal library which you know by, by its label you would assume to be the most you know innocuous of of uh of government uh you know uh institutions and yet you explain how it is just one of these tools that he uses to uh extend and exercise his power how did he seek to perpetuate his power how, how did he seek to a, a, you know, turn the the theory of uh, of of you know uh, of absolutism into a governing reality.
1: Yeah, that that was kind of the the one of the in, interesting paradoxes of of his reign. And and I I borrow in the book a I'm not going to be able to remember the exact quotation, but it's pretty close to this. Um, but it was a scholar talking about Louis the Fourteenth. I'm just going to put Chongju in, in place of Louis XIV, the Fourteenth, but the quote originally applies to Louis. Which is that the weakness of Chongjo's system is that it required Chongjo to make it work, um, and he, I think, recognized that. Um, you know, he died at a, at a very young age, even for the time. He was only 48 years old. You know, we don't know that it was because of overwork, but uh, we are we can be reasonably sure that he was overworked. So that may have contributed to his death at a young age. So he tried to set it up so that, you know, his his successor, his his son, wouldn't have to work that hard. So let's let's try to systematize and and institutionalize this increased power for the king and, and this acceptance that the king is able to do this, so he doesn't have to keep getting this pushback against it. So he's tried to set up things like the royal library, which is he's. Uh, purposeful in setting that up as something that is supposed to look innocuous. Uh, though it, it has a very flattering name. Um, it's, it, in Korean, it's Kyujanggak, which means uh, like the, the hall of the learning of Gui, which is a, a, actually a Chinese a literary god, um, which was also used uh, briefly in China. That exact same term, Kyujanggak, was used uh, to describe the building that housed the writings of the Chinese emperors. And so, yes, it is supposed to—I mean, the Chinese emperor, unlike the Japanese emperor, was not considered himself to be a god, like a, a divine figure. But using divine terminology is supposed to, like, make the emperor look really impressive. So so here is you know Changzhou borrowing this term that applied to, to Chinese emperors uh, to describe this—to name this institution that was you know, intended to house the writings of the kings of Chosun, which he, he and his grandfather— Primarily, because they're the ones who had the most written material that survived. But what he did was he he actually gave because because it's supposed to house the writings of kings. He had an excuse to give it uh, to assign relatively high ranking officials to it, right? So you know uh, why are you you send in these these. Giving really high rank to these people that are just librarians. Like, well, it's because they're taking care of the king's books. So you know you can't you can't can have a lowly low ranking person deal with the king's books. What that means is he's, he's giving these people high rank because once you in the Tolson system you, you had both uh, rank and office. So you had these different ranks and then you had the offices that were assigned to rank. But once you held an office of a certain rank. You had that rank, whatever number it was. So even if you were then transferred or, or fired and then reappointed to a lower office, an office that required a lower rank, you still kept the higher rank that you had from the previous office. Your rank, you know, so your new job might be a lower position, but the rank that you held remained from the higher position. So you always had whatever, whatever the highest rank, you know, position you'd ever had, you had the rank that went with it. So if you serve in the Royal Library, even though it in itself is not an especially impressive post, perhaps you still got the rank that went with it, which would then make you eligible for other posts of a rank of that level. Um, and the, and they they also had an interesting uh, uh, sort of power that um, in the Chosun government you had you know the high officials that made most of the decisions, but then you you had these three different government offices, but they all kind of had the same function. So scholars kind of lump them together, um, which often happened in Tulsa. They often had all different offices that ended up having very similar function. So we just kind of group these three offices together. We call them the censor it and their job, they were usually the younger men and their job was to look at what the government was doing and what the government officials were doing and judge it. So they kind of sat in judgment of it according to Confucianism, according to Confucian standards. Are, are these guys Really, doing what is moral according to Confucianism. And if they didn't, then they would criticize it. They would write a, a letter, you know, criticizing the conduct of these officials and their policies and write to the king, uh, expecting some kind of response. And they were considered to be permitted to do this, which is, you know, not very common in, in the pre modern world. Usually, uh, you can criticize the king and his officials in private, but you don't openly condemn them. That would be considered treason. But Tolson had kind of allowed this tradition of, okay, let, you know, let's have this coterie of, of younger men who have government positions themselves who can you know, engage in, in fruitful and helpful criticism of their superiors. And, and the king should you know, give reasonable – allow them to reasonably air these grievances. Um, but then the royal library, uh, some of those offices in the royal library also had that power but they themselves were exempt from criticism. So they were allowed to criticize everybody else, but they themselves could not be criticized in turn, which is really unusual. Um, so that's also a sort of vehicle that Chongzhu himself could use. Um, because we know that we, – we had always suspected that uh, when, you, when you submit a memorial, which is essentially a letter to the king asking for some sort of policy or asking the king to do something or asking the government to do something and explaining why you want it to be done. Um, You have to put your name on it and and sometimes a bunch of officials would get together and they would all sign the same memorial to show their support for it. But we had always suspected that, you know, just because somebody's name is on the memorial doesn't actually mean that they wrote it. But uh, finally, with Chongzhou, we actually have some proof that that happened um, because we found these letters. Uh, So we we found uh, letters uh, from Chongzhou to one of his high officials that are not the official letters, because official letters, would, like a memorial that I mentioned before, a letter to the king or and his response in return, those are all recorded in the official records. So anybody could could read them later. But these are, we call them secret letters because they were not sent through the official channels. They're, if you don't like secret, you could call them informal letters, which we gather uh, the king was not supposed to do. Uh, he was not supposed to actually engage in this. All of his correspondence with his officials should have been above board, should have been in the public record. But apparently he was sending these letters. And one of the reasons that we suspect that is because uh, of the 300 letters we have that the king wrote to this official, uh, about a dozen of them say, uh, tear this letter – destroy this letter after you read it. Right? So he, he doesn't want people to find these things, uh, which fortunately for historians, uh, apparently the official didn't do that. <laughs> and so in these letters, uh, you know, he's, he's writing that uh, – you know, you know, write, write a, a memorial that says something like this. Um, and then submit it under your name or submit it under somebody else's name. But it's actually Chongjo's words that he's or, – or at least if not his words, it's – because the king in Tolson is, is supposed to react. You know, he, The king is, supposed to, is not supposed to come out and say, you know what? I've been thinking and I think we should do this, right? Now That's not what he was supposed to do. He's supposed to sit there and allow his officials to present memorials or present petitions or ideas and then he makes a decision on them. And so one of the ways Tongzhou got around that when he wanted to do something – uh, now that we know that he would essentially tell one of his supporters, or at least somebody that owed him a favor or something, to present an idea or a policy that he could then rule on. So he, I'm pretty sure that that you know, with the Royal Library, that you know, I, I don't have any direct proof for this, but I'm reasonably, I have a, a strong suspicion that for the Royal Library, uh, one of the reasons he gave the Royal Library officials the ability to criticize without being criticized in return is he wanted to criticize certain officials and so he probably sort of told them, uh, some of those library officials, I want you to criticize this person, like write a memorial saying that that this guy is doing bad stuff because that gives Chongzhou then an excuse to fire that person if if he wants to do it. Hmm.
2: So he has these mechanisms which he's developing and exploiting and he uses them to affect uh, changes that he wants in uh, the Korean system. And you uh, spent a chapter talking about his military reforms. What was he doing with those with the military? And, and why were these reforms so significant? Well, that's
1: a great question because uh, that's, that's actually the part that uh, within Korean studies is the most neglected. As I was saying before, I, I, I hope that Know, absolutism and, and such can be a good uh, addition to kind of the larger conversation about uh, absolutism. But really, when you look at Korean studies, uh, the Chosun military is is horribly neglected. Uh, and that's partly because, yes, for most of the Chosun period, uh, fi- which is about a 500 year period of Korea's history, the country was mostly at peace. This military was relatively small and, and probably not a very effective military. But even that considered, there's still important things about the military that we should be looking at. So I'm glad I had the opportunity uh, to write about this because it's kind of the most, uh, in some ways, the most radical of what Chongjo was doing. Because the, the in, in ancient times, uh, Korea had... It was divided into three kingdoms and they were warrior aristocracy. So the, the king led from the front. The king was expected to be a general and, and, and Korean kings died in battle. Uh, but by the time you get to Cholsun, uh, the country is thoroughly Confucianized. Uh, so the military is, is, is distinctly a lesser branch of the government, uh, much less respected than civilian officials were. So... And, and therefore not very – I mean just like in Korea today, right? The, the, nobody wants to serve in the military. It, it, it's a thankless task. Um, today in South Korea, it, it disrupts uh, young men's career trajectory. It disrupts their education. Uh, and they essentially don't get paid. I mean they do receive a salary, but it's such a – pit. it's like $150 per month. I consider that to be the equivalent of zero. So essentially, they're, <laughs> you know, they're, they're not actually paid. You know, I mean, they're taken care of, their needs are taken care of, but they don't receive any pay for two whole years. Um, so nobody wants to do that, right? Uh, and it's the same way in you, you know, When you went to serve in the army, as when, when it was your turn to do like your few months or whatever in the military, uh, you also were not paid. Uh, and in, in Cholson you weren't even taken care of. Uh, so you would go to the, the fort, you know, wherever your assigned post was, and your family had had to bring you food or, or you had to find some way to get food for yourself. you weren't actually fed by the state um, or, or if you were it wasn't very reliable so um, people didn't want to serve in the military and 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 the the great Yangban clans didn't want their sons to become generals uh, so you had this sort of separation between the 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 powerful Yangban clans, the richest and most powerful ones, and they're all the civilian officials, and you had you know a group of clans who were like um you know the the French. You know, nobles of the sword. You know, the, the robes of the sword—the the ones that it inherit through their for their military prowess. Except, unlike in, in France, uh, the sword nobles would have been the lesser ones. They would have been the, the less respected ones. And so, the 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 king of Cholson was not expected to be very martial. Um, but Chongzhou would do things uh, to remind his officials that in the end, he was actually the commander of the military. So he he engaged in a number of military parades and demonstrations um in which he would appear in armor um he was well known as apparently a very good archer and now of course they exaggerated how good he was they they said you know he hit hit the target 99 times out of 100 which is probably not true but um but still he was you know you know all king. they didn't say that all kings were good archers so the fact that they noted that he was a good archer means he probably was even if they exaggerated it um, and we know that, that his officials uh, were, in fact, intimidated because they told us. So some of his his uh, political opponents would say, you know, you keep having these military parades where you appear in armor. And some, some of us are getting kind of scared about that. Um, and the reason he is doing this is because, you know, two kings of Tulsan uh, during the 500 years, they were overthrown, uh, not through uh, uh, royal infighting. You know, it's not one brother against another brother, though that did also happen. But two times it happened— but it was the officials. It was the the officials of the country had decided that the king had been ruling tyrannically um, or had had done some violation of what they considered to be what the king is supposed to do. And so since the king doesn't directly command the army, it's it's not like a... It's through layers of officials. And so the officials actually uh, could command the king's own army against him. And so... Chongdu knew that, uh, and his grandfather had suffered a rebellion uh, of the same thing it was it was not you know a peasant rebellion um it was not a rebellion from his you know brother or cousin trying to take the throne no it was it was officials that that thought that um that he was going to persecute them, so they decided to move first and try to have him overthrown and it didn't work. And in fact, it probably didn't have much hope of working, but at the time it was going on, it looked very dangerous. You know, we we now know that they handled it pretty easily. But it was a shock to to the king, to to Chongou's grandfather, who was because it was very early in his reign, he was very young, he's very insecure, and then he gets this rebellion, which it looked like it was really major and really dangerous. And so even though uh Chengdu's grandfather ruled the country f- for fifty-two years. He still remembered, you know, that those first couple of years when we had this, this terrible rebellion that he thought was maybe the end of his kingship, the end of his life, uh, the end of, of his family's rule of the country. So when Chongjo became king, he was concerned about this possibility that military officials, or remember, that, that the, the officials had this control of the military. So he built a gigantic fortress, which was supposed to protect the tomb of his father from robbery. And that was pretty common to do to build like a little fort for a few soldiers to prevent grave robbery. But he built it into this giant fortress, which it still exists in the city of Suwon, which is now a a suburb of of Seoul uh, today. They used to be two separate cities, but Seoul keeps growing. So, so now it's, it's a suburb of Seoul. Um, It's mostly been restored. It's a lot of, it's not original, but it is mostly still there. And it's, it's, you know, this giant fortress that runs throughout the, the downtown part of of Suwon, and then he assigned to it a new military unit he had created that was directly under the command of the governor of Suwon. Uh, so it's not in the normal military hierarchy. And Chungjo consistently appointed to that office, and th- so then because it's the governor of a of a of a major city, it means it reports directly to the king. And so he always put a key supporter of his in that position. So essentially, what he's done is he's created. A separate military unit that's directly loyal to the king, and is defending a fortress that he could flee to if necessary. Um, and another way that we can suspect that that's what he was doing is because that military unit and was immediately disbanded after he died. Uh, it was supposedly too expensive, um, so they uh, so they 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 got rid of it after he died because they recognized that giving the king separate military power made him potentially more independent uh, than the officials
2: wanted. The fact that they disbanded this unit right after his death raises a very interesting question, which is how effective uh, were his uh, efforts to uh, strengthen the power of the Korean monarchy? What was his long-term legacy for Korean government and and for Korea more generally?
1: Yeah, that's a question that I I think even – uh, my book doesn't really answer it. Re- it more poses that question. I mean, I give an answer, but I don't in any way consider it to be definitive. And so I, I really hope that another consequence, I, I have big ambitions for this book. Um, another thing I hope will happen is that people will look at it um, and and investigate Chongju a little more and maybe come up with a more comprehensive and a better Answer as to what exactly his, his legacy ends up being. Uh, I, I don't pretend to be the final word on it. But I would say that um, his legacy was, he was very effective at his goal of relative royal strength and independence while he was alive. But I don't think he did a very good job of, in fact, I, I think he pretty much failed at instituting that. So his legacy in that way is he created a system that needed a powerful central presence. And when there wasn't one in the form of his son, it became one in the form of uh, what we modern scholars refer to as in-law family governance. They didn't use that term then. But what that means is it became an issue of who could marry their, which powerful clan could marry their daughter, one of their daughters to a, to the future king. And once they did that, then they kind of secured their clan's dominance of the government, um, which traditionally we've always considered to be bad. And we consider it to be bad, I think because of our inheritance of Confucianism, which as I mentioned before, for a Confucian scholar, uh, t- taking over the king's position is, is usurpation. It's, it's not the proper way of things. So it's usually been seen as negative. Oh, the 19th century is bad because the kings are not ruling. Instead, uh, the, the in-law family, so the queen's clan, is, is kind of dominating the government. But in the end, we really have to look at that and kind of reevaluate it and say, was that really so bad? Because there was a lot less bloodshed um, instead of the, the really painful factional disputes that would often find you know, people being executed, as I said, this posthumous uh, taking people's offices, posthumously even desecrating their corpses—that's uh, went way down. The struggle between the different in-law families became very, um, very much more like kind of dangerous liaisons, kind of thing, <laughs> like like ruining people's reputations, uh, outwitting them in in marriage partnerships and alliances, and much less about just openly having people killed. And the government seems to have function. I mean, there, there were famines in the 1830s and into the 1850s, uh, which is not good, but these are famines caused by weather, um, not caused by human mismanagement, but caused by weather. And the government seemed to still be effective in fighting them because the, the government had uh, storehouses where they s- stored grain uh, in, in bumper crops when it was a good year, then they would have this grain stored. And then in a bad year, uh, they don't give away for free, unfortunately, but they would sell it at what the normal price was instead of, you know, an inflated, you know, when there's a bad year, then the price of what rice you have goes way up and people can't afford it. So the government had these, that's why they call them ever normal granaries. So that means they keep the price of rice normal. They would sell it at a reasonable price. People could afford. So this famine relief measure still seemed to be functioning throughout the 19th century. So maybe the 19th century is actually not uh, as bad as, as we've been led to believe. Um, So it may turn out that, that paradoxically, by failing, Chongzhou succeeded because <laughs> by not successfully instituting a, uh, uh, an absolutist government, he instead instituted a in-law government that was much less contentious, uh, much less ri- riven with strife and infighting and, and political violence and struggling over controlling or trying to control an absolute king or the absolute king trying to escape that control. And actually, might have contributed to the government functioning better, uh, or at least as well as it had before, uh, even with fewer resources. Um, but again, that is in no way the definitive conclusion. Uh, I invite um, anyone with interest to to take up that mantle and and look at it more closely. Uh, but that's what I think may end up be that and and the fortress, the the fortress in Suwon, which which remains today. It's a, the most
2: physical legacy that you can see. Um, uh, still remains today. Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before you go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Uh, Right now, I'm working on a very ambitious uh, project, which um, a lot of people uh, don't know or are only vaguely aware that Korea was a slave society, uh, for the majority of its history. And when I say slave society, what I mean for anybody who's not familiar with that, the term as used in slavery studies, um, it doesn't just mean a society that has slaves. I mean, that describes most human societies, uh, sadly, most human societies have to at least some extent involved, um, you know, the, the ownership and, and trade of people and, and their labor. But most human societies you know, as bad as what I just said is, at the very least, it was usually a small part of their, o- of the overall population. I mean, you know, there's very, various degrees of lack of freedom. Um, you know, for most of human society, most people haven't really been what we would call free, but most of the time they were also not slaves. Uh, so, you know, in China, the percentage was probably only like 8% at the absolute highest. Usually it's probably more like 2%, Japan less than 1%. Um, so, you know, it's usually, you know, slavery is uh, terrible for anyone to be under, but at least it wasn't a huge number of people. But then the, when we talk about a slave society, that usually means between, t- depending on which scholar you ask, between 20 and 30%. Uh, so like the American South, you know, during, you know, in, before the Civil War, it was about 30%. Uh, ancient Rome was, you know, all, relatively the same number of, of slaves. According to most estimates, uh, Korea in the Tulsun period and probably in the period before that, was a slave society. It also had about 30%. There there were villages where 70% of the population were were slaves. And so not only is this unusual, just because slave societies are pretty rare in in world history, but it appears to be the only one in Asia. Um, And so, and it's sitting right between China and Japan, neither of which was a slave society. It was a Confucian society, which China also was, yet apparently Korean Confucianism permitted not only slavery, but, but wide scale, large scale slavery and somehow the Korean scholars didn't see a conflict between that. So it's kind of a, so my next project is, is, as I said, it's going to be quite ambitious because I'm trying to look at a very broad view of Korean slavery with the intent of introducing it because Korean scholars know this already, but with the intent of introducing it to a more international audience, hey guys, by the way, if you didn't know, here's possibly the only slave society in Asia. How do we explain that? You know, whatever you know theories that we have of of slavery, um, and if it sounds vague, it's because it is because I'm I'm only just getting into the, the first part of it. Um, anybody who might be interested in that uh, next year, um, there's a, a book coming out which I believe is is called uh, 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 "Slavery and Unfree Labor in Asia." That's probably not the exact title, but it's something like that, uh, edited by Richard Allen. Um, and it's got a chapter in there that I've done, uh, which is kind of the results of the preliminary work I've done where I, again, I just sort of a chapter length sort of overview of Korean slavery, you know, situated against other slavery in Asia. So hopefully that's going to be out next year. Um, so I've only just gotten into, to doing it, which is why the, it sounds kind of vague, but it's, yeah, a, a sort of introduction to Korean slavery for the non-Korea specialist.
2: Well, Sounds like a very interesting project, and uh, maybe when it's complete, you can, we can have you back on the New Books Network. Oh, that'd be great. Well, uh, Christopher Levins, uh, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure.